Drawing room over here. You made it. Oh, come on through. Do you fancy drink? What's your tipple? Macquarie Bank is one of Australia's great success stories with thousands of employees around the globe and a position at the top of the field when it comes to infrastructure asset management. And it's a company known for rewarding its employees, at one point being dubbed the Millionaire's Factory. Indeed, that's the name of the new book by Joyce Malarcus and Chris Wright, who have talked to more than 100 people to bring together a kind of examination of the company's past and its future. The full title is The Millionaire's Factory, the inside story of how Macquarie Bank became a global giant. And Joyce and Chris are in the studio. Welcome to you both. Thank you very much for having us. What are the defining characteristics, I'll start with you, Joyce, uh, about Macquarie Bank, not just how it's built, but how it's managed to maintain this reputation? I think Macquarie is really characterised, even going back to the early days, the no- starting in 1969 in the early 70s, it's about empowering people. It's about be- giving people enough leash to go and try an idea that they might have, giving them a little bit of capital to dip their toe in the water and say, hey, we're going to try this. It may work. It may not work. They're they're not afraid of failing. It's about empowering the individual, but also uh, putting in place a risk management framework that doesn't allow them to stray too far from the initial plan or idea. So it's kind of like the partnership model, but they're taking employ uh, in entrepreneurs and really empowering them like a cabal of entrepreneurs as opposed to employees. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, entrepreneurship's a good way to describe it. And because staff have a large ownership in the listed entity now too, it really um, ensures that there is alignment between the staff and the management and the investors. So uh, I think they've tried to maintain that all the way through right from the very beginning. Chris, there's this statistic that you cite, a former executive said at any given time, 40% of the business didn't exist five years ago. That's an extraordinary uh, statistic to help understand the pace of change. How has the company been able to maintain that level of change? Yeah, I think this is the other key point to understand about Macquarie's long-term success is its ability to evolve. It's a very different animal today to what it was 10 years ago and again different to 20 or 30 years before and it will be different again five years from now. It's done well through achieving diversity across a wide range of business groups. It's done well at spotting what's coming, what to get into, but it's also very sharp about what to get out of. It's utterly unromantic. When a business has run its course, you close it down, you do something new. And that capacity to be something new every time for every different economic environment is a large part of the story, I think. Yeah, some businesses struggle to change in one industry, let alone the constant pace of change that Macquarie has been able to maintain. There are two particular keys that you point to in the book, a preparedness to back employees, as you said, even through early failure, and a deep understanding of risk. And that's what I want to ask about, the appetite for risk across these diverse portfolios. How, how can you have those things work together, the risk and the ambition, if you like, Joyce? I think when you look at it, and Shamara, the CEO today, still talks about it. She has this word, and and it's been used all through Macquarie's history, adjacency. And what they like to do is they like to go into an adjacent area, try it out, 
get a business case and then build from there. They don't like to, I mean, they have done some large acquisitions, but usually they're in areas they're already operating in. They usually like to sort of go into these adjacencies, build something out and then continue to grow from there once they've got their business case sorted out. So it's a bit like jumping into the shallow end of the pool and edging your way in rather than backing yourself to jump right in the deep end. There is something that you've referred to as the loose, tight approach or uh, failure within boundaries. What, is, what does this mean, Chris? Yeah, that alludes to Juice's earlier point about empowerment. The th- interesting thing about Macquarie is ideas come from the bottom. They don't come from the top. No chief executive has ever said, this is what you've got to do. They've said, you go out there, go into the world, and it is the world. It's the whole world. They are literally everywhere. So you find an opportunity, you build it. Loose tight and freedom of boundaries refers to the framework within which you operate. Uh, you've got a certain amount of ammunition to go and do what you want to do. You've got the tolerance for modest failure. But the loose tight part is what makes sure that you're never going to blow the place up if you get it wrong. And if I had to say the secret source of Macquarie, it is exactly that combination that you alluded to, both the appetite to take risk while also keeping it very carefully in check. Let's go back to the beginnings of the company to understand how far it's come. Macquarie comes out of a company called Hill Samuel & Co. How did one become the other and where did their attitude to change and risk kind of really begin, Joyce? Well, it goes all the way back to probably 1971 when David Clark and Mark Johnson joined as joint managing directors and they had both done stints at Harvard. Uh, They had an idea, they learnt there that there's this approach to management and it's don't control the employee too much, give them a bit of rope to go and try new things but within a framework. And they really instilled that and even the remuneration model back in those days was similar to what they have today in terms of deferral, uh, performance, very performance-based. And they sort of set out on with trying, with sort of dipping their toe into uh, markets, businesses, corporate advisory, uh, sort of getting around town, getting known. Um, and then they also set about trying to hire the best possible people. Um, so the psychometric test, which we'll read about in the book, that was a very early feature of Macquarie. Um, they, yeah, they really set about finding the best people and putting in some structure around it early on with, again, freedom within boundaries or loose tight sort of structure. I suppose it's sort of related, but you pointed to a theory by Douglas McGregor about managing staff, theory X and theory Y. Why is theory Y particularly important to understanding Macquarie? Theory Y means that employees, by giving employees responsibility, you get more from them. It's not sort of a command and control model. Um, And I think that is really one of the foundations of Macquarie. Uh, people are encouraged to come up with ideas. People are cur- encouraged to go into new markets, try things out, move into a different geography. Uh, it's that entrepreneurialism, that's mm. that entrepreneurial streak that came from early on in that the theory why that you speak of. This leads to something else that feels intrinsically linked. Why does it matter that all of their CEOs have come from within, Chris? That must be pretty important in terms of retaining culture whilst, as we said before, 40% of the existing business didn't exist five years ago. I think it is important, and it's not just the CEOs. Whenever you look at their executive committees, their senior ranks, it is totally normal to see people who've been there for 30 years. And there's two things I think that come from that. One is the compensation structure. 
which is a matter of enduring interest whenever anybody talks about Macquarie. People do get locked in in these deals in a way that binds them to the place for decades at a time, and they don't particularly mind it. But clearly, it brings cultural strength if you are constantly promoting from within. We had an interesting conversation with Peter Warren, who for a long time was chairman of Macquarie, and we asked him, when was Shamara first really in the frame to be the next chief executive after Nicholas Moore? And he said, well, probably from the day Nicholas Moore started as CEO. Now, that's 10 years. That's 10 years of thinking about who the next person's going to be, letting them get the skill set that they need and preparing it all. It's a lot healthier and easier to run a business when you do it that way rather than trying to bring in new fresh blood every few years. Yeah, extraordinary ascendancy and contingency and, you know, foresight there. Uh, if you just tuned in, I'm Andy Park. This is RN Drive. Joyce Malakis and Chris Wright are my guests. We're talking about their new book, The Millionaire's Factory on Macquarie Bank. And uh, Joyce, there have been a number of important moments throughout the company's history, but the deregulation of the Australian banking sector, the floating of the Australian dollar and the formal founding of Macquarie Bank must have made for particularly uh, huge events during the last few years. Yeah, I mean, when Paul Keating was freeing up the banking system, there were licences on offer that hadn't been on offer previously. And Hill Samuel Australia, as it was known then, was thinking, well, we need to be part of this. Uh, If we want to compete with the best international banks in the world, we need to figure out a way to get one of these licences. And they sort of figured out pretty early on that the international licences being issued, they were a Hill Samuel Samuel was a British-based bank, but they were sort of outdone by the likes of the Japanese banks, UBS, uh, HSBC. They thought, we're not going to get one of these. Um, So they sort of had to think a little bit laterally around what are we going to do, get to Canberra, have the relevant discussions, and then they figured out we're going to – the best way to – well, they – I think it was John Stone gave them a little bit of a hint and said – well, you guys figure it out. You're smart guys uh, and and women, obviously. And um, they figured out that a domestic licence was the best way forward um, because they didn't think they were going to get an international banking licence. But it was a it was an amazing time of deregulation. Paul Keating was really um, spearheading that, obviously. Uh, and Macquarie sort of pounced at the opportunity. They spent eight months drafting the licence. Um, Chris obviously uh, wrote a lot of that chapter, so he's uh, probably well-placed to jump in here too. Well, I do think it's a real sliding doors moment when you think about it. Australia was changing and Macquarie embraced that moment. But had they not done it, had they not been licensed at that time and got the facility to be bigger, we might not ever have heard of them today. They might have been bought by other people. They would have been a small group of brainy, interesting people but who never really gained critical mass beyond it. The fact that they happened to be the right people at the right time when Australia was entering the world and they had the right minds to do it, getting that licence is really what sets the whole story up. We can't talk about Macquarie Bank without talking about the culture uh, inside the business. Uh, You know, in the early 2000s, it was work hard, play hard. I mean, a lot of companies might say that, but it, it is particularly true about Macquarie Bank, isn't it? Well, I suppose... Investment banking as a as an industry and a sector has a bad reputation. And Macquarie in the early 2000s was, um, sorry, in the lead up to the GFC and the early 2000s, was predominantly an investment bank. That was the biggest driver of their business. They were getting into infrastructure, but predominantly investment banking was their bread and butter. Um, and those were the heady days. There was a lot of deal making going on, a lot of money sloshing around. 
um, perhaps not as much governance as we're used to today. Um, and yeah, I mean, that was reflected in, in parts of Macquarie in the culture. So you... For, for the average uh, Australian, you know, you think about these sorts of businesses, you can't help but compare it to the Wolf of Wall Street and, you know, when these largely masculine type uh, industries, shall we say, sometimes go too far. Did Macquarie Bank go too far in your research, in their culture, when it came to come to treatment of women or employees, that sort of thing? I think it's hard to say. I mean, obviously there were people working very long hours. Uh, there was a blokey culture in parts of the bank, as we've written in the book, trips to strip clubs, uh, not inviting women out to those lunches, obviously. Uh, it, I can't imagine it was a great place for women to work um, or start a family and take time out. But I think that was indicative of the whole industry. I mean, obviously Macquarie had issues, um, but so did a lot of investment banks during that era. I do think that period of time is fascinating for Macquarie for a variety of reasons. It was just characterised by the most incredible ambition. They thought they could do anything. You know, let's buy the London Stock Exchange. Why not? Let's buy Sydney Airport and Qantas while we're at it. And not all of those things came to pass, but this sense, this high-octane sense of being able to do anything, of profits leaping sometimes by 60% year on year, uh, was remarkable. And, uh, it, of course, it came to a shuddering halt with the GFC, which, uh, which we might get to. But it was an interesting time also because I think it was the first time that Macquarie really faced scrutiny. Until then, it had been a scrapping, interesting, clever underdog. But by that stage, it was no longer fighting the big guy. It was the big guy. And the level of public scrutiny at that time was something that was very new to Macquarie, something new that they had to navigate. And also the further they got into public infrastructure, things like Sydney Airport and things like that, things that people instinctively think they own themselves, the greater that scrutiny became. So uh, let's talk about the GFC. I mean, this organisation, as it got bigger and bigger, was still able to more or less stay nimble and be prepared. Were they prepared for the GFC, though? I think as much as they could have been prepared, um, they did sort of start to sense that there were trouble. There was trouble in funding markets. They they started to figure out the board was identifying assets they could divest. Should that should it come to it? Um, but the problem was that the whole financial system was in was chaotic. Uh, there was contagion. There were runs on banks in the UK. Uh, there were collapses. You had Lehman and Bear Stearns. Credit default swap markets were doing crazy things. It was it was just a really chaotic period and investor sentiment was out of control to the point where, you know, you didn't really know what was happening. Um, I think they were pre as prepared as, the, as they could have been. But they, there were the government guarantee and the measures that came in after that with the bans on short selling and stuff really stabilised sentiment and helped them sort of navigate through the other side. But did it hobble that sense of uh, ambition and those grand aspirations, that moonshot kind of culture that existed before the GFC inside Macquarie Bank? Well, to my mind, one of the most interesting moments in the bank's whole history is it right in the teeth of the GFC when rumours were swirling that the whole place was going to fall down, that, you know, the counterparties were worrying about whether they should continue to trade with them, right in the teeth of all of this, they bought a business in America called Constellation, uh, an oil and gas trading platform, and that today is the heart of where those supernormal commodities profits are coming from. But the fact that as they were fighting fires all around them, they still 
had the capital to go out there and buy a troubled business that would pay off a decade down the track is, I think, quite an illustrative story. We talked earlier about how the company managed risk and this sort of two-tone risk ambition kind of model. Do you think they'll continue to be able to handle that risk even on an international scale? Because the banking sector has had scandals. We don't need to go all over them here. But in the last decade, it is true. So going forward Mm. and looking at the global headwinds we face in the Australian economy and, and internationally, will Macquarie be able to maintain that mix of ambition and risk management? I think the risk management piece obviously is getting more difficult for Macquarie. Um, Obviously, you know, the international side of their business accounts for about 75% of their income. So they're in a lot, 33 markets around the world. Uh, You know, those involve different regulatory regimes. In Australia, uh, in recent times, they did get in trouble. Um, They had a capital charge imposed on them by APRA uh, for not managing their capital properly and liquidity arrangements. So there are slip-ups from time to time. It's not that they're completely um, infallible. Um, But, you know, they do have a good sense of risk and it has been sort of ingrained in the culture all the way through that risk management has to be a priority. So it's... And, uh, and I think, Joyce, it's interesting too. It's a really good question because the bigger you become as an enterprise, by definition, the harder it becomes to be nimble, to allow people to do their own thing, to be fully across absolutely everything that's happening. One of the biggest challenges Macquarie faces today is to keep that culture resonant as you grow. If it's going to be twice the size that it is today, are you really going to be able to keep those cultural characteristics alive? And that's a challenge that the chief executive faces and works on today. It's a fascinating book and a timely examination of a, a, a company as important to the Australian economy as Macquarie Bank is. Congratulations and thanks for coming in. Thank you so much Thank for having us. Thank you very much. Thank you. The new book by Chris Rice and Joyce Malakas is called The Millionaire's Factory and it's out now through Alan and Unwin. You've been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park. For more great conversations, search for The Drawing Room on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.